Okay, well, I'd invite the rest of you to open up God's Word together so we can study His Word to see what He has to say to us. And if you do have a Bible, I'd open, uh, invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we have extra Bibles. If you'd raise your hand, we'll walk down the aisle. And if you need a Bible, you can go ahead and put your hand in the air, and then one of our ushers will give you one. Okay, so we need one up here. There, I think they're on the way. We need a Bible right here. Here it comes. Anybody over on this side that needs a Bible? Okay. Great. Also in your... Um, bulletin. There were some notes there of the sermon, just to kind of follow along of where we're going. Just so you know, since we started five months ago, we decided to go through the book of Ephesians, or I decided to go through the book of Ephesians, because in six chapters, the book of Ephesians tells us basically how to do church and how to be Christians. And so it's kind of the basic Christianity 101. And we are now in our study in the middle of chapter 4, verse 12. Two weeks ago, we left off verse 11. So all we're going to do is just look at verse 12. We've actually been doing a chunk at a time or a paragraph at a time or a section at a time, and we've started to slow down recently because, actually one verse at a time, because some of these verses are just, there's too much information to just pass over. We've got to go into detail because they're dealing with very specific things related to what is affecting our church. And verse 12 is an example. The verse that we're going to look at today, Ephesians 4.12, actually happens to be one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. There's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is it it is my job description. If you were to ask me what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor, I would immediately, one of my first answers always is Ephesians 4.12. That is what I'm supposed to do first and foremost if I am a pastor in the ministry in terms of my full-time vocation. So I need to understand it well. And also, not only do I need to understand it, but those that I shepherd with and among need to know Ephesians 4.12 and why that's my job description because then it provides an expectation of you for me. You can't have unrealistic expectations of the pastor. They have to be biblical expectations. And you can't uh, have expectations uh, that are deficient either. So this is going to be very helpful for me to get me back on focus and also for a church body so we understand what the nature of the pastor is supposed to be in the local church. Um, Also, the context here, like I said, in Ephesians chapter 4, I've said that verses 1 through 16 is a unit. It's a theme. It's an entire paragraph that Paul wrote talking to the Ephesians. And the main theme is... Uh, Paul is telling Christians how to grow the church, how to build the church, how the church is going to mature with time, uh, over time, over the 2,000 years that we existed, but also even in the local assembly, how your local church can grow and mature and become more like Christ. And how important that theme is for those of us who planted a church and started a church from scratch, right? You start from scratch, you have very little, you don't have very many resources, you don't have a whole lot of people, and the question that keeps uh, coming that you have to grapple with is how are we going to grow the church? How are we going to grow our church? How is this church going to grow? What is the secret? What do we need to do? What book do we need to buy? Where's the secret formula? That's just typical. All churches and pastors are asking that. How do we grow the church? And this is particularly important for a church plant from scratch. So that's why this is such an important passage, this paragraph, but also this verse is the answer in, in verse 12. This answers the question of how do we grow the church? How do we build the church? Let me tell you a little story. True story. Um, There are four, I just chose four very significant, well-known, influential evangelical pastors in America today. That most Christians, if you're in the Christian community, you know the name. Um, One would be Bill Hybels, who has a church in Chicago. And he started it probably 30 years ago. And he started it as a church plant. A whole bunch of people got together out of a Bible study and wanted to start a church plant about 30 years ago. And they just started praying. They didn't really know what they were doing, admittedly, 30 years in hindsight. Um, but over time, 
uh, God blessed that ministry, and the church now, 30 years later, I visited that church. It's, I don't know, fifteen to 20,000 people are at the church. Not that necessarily a whole bunch of numbers means you're doing it the right way, but the point is, is that it has grown over the years. Um, and Bill Hybels, he's a pastor, he wrote a book recently, and it's called The Volunteer Revolution. And basically the theme of the whole book is Ephesians 4.12. That over the years, he's come to realize that the way you grow a church isn't what you do, it's what God does. God grows the church, Christ grows the church, and Christ involves his saints in growing the church. And the way he does that is clearly stated in Ephesians 4.12. So that's what Bill Hybel said. That's how his church grew, Ephesians 4.12. And there's another guy in Southern California, Pastor John MacArthur, that's well known to many people in our area here. Um, and I used to go to that church at Grace Community Church, and he, Pastor John started 40 years ago. Almost 1969 took over a church that was about 100 people or so in Southern California. Didn't, and he was young in the ministry as well, but 40 years later, he's seen his church go from 100 or 200 now to over 12,000 people. And he's written a book as well, or several books, on how to grow a church or how to run a church. And one of his books is called Shepherdology or The Master's Plan for the Church. And a lot of the theme for that book is Ephesians 4.12. Here's how you grow a church. Here's how you see a church get blessed. It's Ephesians 4.12 is the answer. I mean, many people have asked these men, like Bill Hybels or John MacArthur or Rick Warren is another one that's very well known, who also started a church plant 30 years ago in Orange County from scratch. Same thing as a young guy. And now his church is probably about 17,000 people. And he wrote a book in 1995 called The Purpose Driven Church. I've read that book. And the, the main theme of that book, of if you want to see your church grow, is you do Ephesians 4.12. Then there's another guy uh, down in Southern California, Pastor Jack Hayford, who's been a pastor of what is called the Church on the Way in Van Nuys, California. He started a church plant about 40-plus years ago in a little Bible study, him and about 12 other people. And he wrote a book on it called The Church on the Way. And I have that book, and I've read that book. And all that, the whole book is about Ephesians 4.12. Here's how he started with just a few people. And he looks back 40 years later and he sees how God grew the church. And his answer to how did God grow the church? Ephesians 4.12. So how are we going to grow our church? Well, I think it's Ephesians 4.12. So that's why we have to look at this verse. And the interesting thing is, is these guys, John MacArthur, Jack Hayford, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, uh, they don't necessarily agree on all of their theology with one another. They have different philosophies of ministry. They even have a different methodology of ministry. They have different personalities. They even have a different emphasis in their ministry. They have different giftedness. But the one thing that they all agreed upon was that if you want to grow a church in a biblical way, that it needs to be done through Ephesians 4.12. I just thought that was amazing. So that's what I want to do. I don't want to necessarily follow those four guys, but I do want to investigate Ephesians 4.12 and make sure that we understand the biblical principles so that we can honor God and let Christ build his church the way he wants to. And it may be that Christ's, church, Christ's decision for Grace Bible Fellowship isn't to make it uh, mushroom to 15,000 people. Maybe he only wants it to be 5,000 people, a real small church. No, I'm joking. Or maybe he only wants it to be 500 people. Or maybe he only wants to keep it 150. You know what? That is totally up to the discretion of God and of Christ because it's his church. Our obligation simply to be obedient, isn't it? understand and be faithful to his word. So let's go ahead and look at that. And I call this body building. The body refers to the church. That's what Paul calls it. It's the body of Christ, body building part two. And we're probably going to go for two more weeks on building the church because that's what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter four. I want to read verses 11 and 12 because they go together. So let's go ahead and do that. Ephesians four, 
Paul keeps on talking about how Christ gave gifts to the church to help them grow, to help the church grow, picking up at verse 11, and he, Christ, or God, more particularly Christ, gave to the church as gifts, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So last time we talked about Christ is building his church, growing his church, and he started growing the church by laying the foundation, and the foundation of his church that he was building was gifted men he gave to the church. And that was those men that we just listed. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But he gave other gifts to the church as well. We're going to get into that next week. But verse 12, Paul gives the reason as to why, or the function, or what the responsibility was of these men that God gave to lay the foundation of the church. Why did God give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church? Well, the answer is in verse 12. What was their purpose? What is the purpose of a pastor? What's a teacher, a biblical teacher in the church supposed to be doing? Well, here's the answer in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, or for the work of ministry, in order that, or to the building up of the body of Christ. That is the purpose. God gives pastors to the local church to equip the saints so that they will do the work of the ministry so that the church will grow. That's all there is to it. It's very simple. So there is no secret formula that's impossible that you can't figure out. It's actually very simply stated in Scripture. It's almost too simplistic to believe. I mean, that's all there is to it? Yeah, that's all there is to it. The important thing is, though, you've got to do it the right way, in the right order, with the right priority, and the right biblical perspective. So we're going to look at that. I came up with three principles that I just wanted to draw from verse 12 on how we can be involved in building the church. I keep saying that Christ is the one that builds the church because that's what he said, right? In Matthew 16, 18, he prophesied and said, I will build my church. But in his sovereignty, he left earth and went to heaven, and he still had to fulfill his promise. He's still going to build his church, and he has chosen, fortunately for us, to use us to build the church. He's going to build it using us. We are his laborers, co-laborers. That's amazing. Well, how do we do that? We're going to co-labor with Christ to build the church? Well, here's part of it in verse 12. Uh, three principles on how we help Christ build the church and see it grow. Uh, before I get to that, I just want to read this. This is a statement that one pastor wrote about seeing the church grow and the role of spiritual gifts in building the church, and I thought it was quite insightful. He says this, According to Ephesians 12, the work of the ministry is not the responsibility of the paid professional or the pastor, right? Like a little house in the prairie or those other shows where there's a church and there's just one guy that runs the show and does everything, and that's the pastor, right, or the reverend. Nobody else really does anything. It's the one-man show. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Actually, it is the job of the saints or all Christians or every believer. It is their job to do the work of the ministry in a local church. The church continues to suffer today from the Middle Ages syndrome, which inactivated the laymen, or just regular Christians, and virtually deified or elevated the clergy. Today, when a job needs to be done, it is not uncommon to hear the words, well, let's hire somebody to do it in the church. As a result, all too often, when something needs to get done in the local church, we just pay somebody to do the job, regardless of what it is. As someone has graphically put it, the local church is like a football game. 22 men are down on the field desperately needing rest while there are 50,000 cheering spectators who desperately need exercise. The answer to the problem of getting the fans out of the stands and onto the playing field is to secure not more cheerleaders or spectators, but more athletes or players. Players who want to compete and not let their potential go to waste. 
The undiscovered secret which gets the fans out of the stands and into the work of the ministry centers around the subject of spiritual gifts. And that's what Paul introduced in chapter 4, this idea of using spiritual gifts that God gives to man so that the church can grow. So in light of that, let's go to our three principles that come out of Ephesians 4.12 to tell us how we can help this church grow. Point number one is that God gave sufficient resources for true ministry. Jesus didn't just tell us to help build the church. He gave us the resources to do it. That's always comforting, isn't it? To know that you have the resources to do a job. You have adequate resources. Not only that, we have supernatural resources to do the job. God gave sufficient resources for true ministry. What are our resources uh, to do church ministry, to help the church grow? Well, the next blank there is biblical truth. Biblical truth. Scriptural teaching. That is the resource we use to help a church grow. It's not human wisdom, human education, experience. It's spiritual truth. And by that I mean scriptural truth. By that I mean the Bible. Because uh, that verse says that God gave these godly men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to the church so that they will equip or prepare the Christians so that they can do the work of the ministry. So my job is to help prepare and equip the Christians so that they can do the ministry. The question is, well, how do I equip them and what do I use to equip them? Well, the answer is biblical truth, the scripture. That's what I'm supposed to use. That is my greatest tool. That's what is in my arsenal. That's what's in my toolkit, the word of God. I need to know the word of God. I need to live the word of God. I need to be able to communicate in a practical way the word of God. I need to model the word of God. It's the Bible. It has to consume my life or any pastor's life. It's all the Bible, all the scripture. That's my sphere of knowledge and expertise. Outside of that, I don't know much. Outside of that, I'm pretty boring to talk to. But I better know what the Bible says because that is my responsibility or anybody that is called as an elder or pastor to know the word of God. That is their resource. That's what they use. That's their reservoir of truth to communicate to the people, to help train them, equip them so they can be mature Christians, so that they can serve in the ministry, so that the church will grow. If a pastor doesn't master the word of God, he's not teaching the word of God, he's not modeling the word of God, he's not equipping the people with the word of God on their behalf, and they're not growing in their knowledge of the Word of God, then you will stunt spiritual growth in the church on an individual level and also on a corporate level. And you will have a dysfunctional church. You will have dysfunctional Christians and a dysfunctional church. That's how important it is. So God gave sufficient resources, and primarily, first, He gave gifted men, and what gifted men were supposed to use was the Word of God or the Scripture, as I put there. By the way, it's kind of interesting in verse 11. What do, all, what do these guys have in common? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Because they do have one thing in common in terms of uh, what they gave their life to what their, and what they gave their time to and what their vocation and calling was, what they did. We might get different answers. Some people might say, well, they were a pastor is first and foremost to be a political activist or a social activist or a social worker or a, or a philanthropist or a CEO or a facilitator. And none of those are in the description of the New Testament of what a pastor is supposed to be. Pastor, evangelist, teacher, apostles, prophets, they all had one thing in common. And look what it was in Ephesians chapter... I mean, sorry, go to Acts chapter 6. Because it's directly related to this passage. 
and just to answer the question, the one common denominator that all those men had in common in terms of their ministry was that they had a, called what was called the ministry of the Word. They did the ministry of the Word. The Word is referring to the Word of God or Scripture. What did all of these men do? They preached the Bible. They taught the Bible. They exhorted with the Bible. They counseled with the Bible. They proclaimed the Bible. They uh, exposited the Bible. That's what they did. They did it on a micro level, one-on-one with people as they taught the Bible. They did it on a larger level in groups like this. And then they also did it on a huge level, proclaiming and preaching to large crowds. But the one common denominator of all these men is they had a ministry of the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, explaining the Word of God, opening up the Word of God so that people can understand it and apply it. So look at Acts chapter 6. Early on in the church, as the church was growing, the church was being faithful, the leaders of the church were being obedient to their calling, which was using the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, and God honored that, and there was exponential, amazing growth in the church. And I want to just read verses 1 through 6 real quick. Look at this. Now, at this time early on in the church, as the church in Jerusalem started growing, it went from 120 people, actually it went from 11 people to 120 people to 3,000 people to 5,000 people rather quickly, a megachurch. How did that happen? Now, at this, and as soon as you get to 3,000 and 5,000 people, you start having logistical problems, don't you? How in the world do you contend with all of these people? How, how, we've got 75 people in our nursery. Uh, we don't have enough people to change diapers. So you had logistical problems early on in the church with very practical things. They had a fellowship meal, and that's where they were having problems in Acts chapter 6. Look at it. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, the church was growing like crazy. A complaint arose. I'm glad that doesn't happen in our church. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, who were Christians, against the native Hebrew Christians. And because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food at the fellowship meal, people weren't getting enough food at the fellowship meal, so they started having a fight in the church. Verse 2, and the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, they were the leaders of the church. They were at that time the pastors of the church or the elders and overseers of the church. They were in charge. The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples. So they got the whole congregation together and said, we need to stop fighting about the fellowship meal. We've got to solve this problem. So we need to prioritize So the twelve apostles summoned the entire congregation of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable for us as the apostles, the pastors, the teachers, the elders of the church, to neglect, notice, the word of God in order to serve tables. Some translations say it is not appropriate for us to neglect the ministry of the word. So the apostles, the pastors, the elders, the leaders of the church, they were supposed to be given first and foremost to the ministry of the word of God, teaching the word of God, which is what I'm supposed to be doing. So they didn't want to be distracted from that on these other secondary or just different issues that didn't directly relate to their calling or job description. Verse 3, so they came up with this solution. But select from among the congregation, brethren, seven men of good reputation. By the way, these were the first deacons in the church. And these deacons were to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, godly men, whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice the congregation helped choose these men who were going to serve as deacons. And they were going to be put in charge of a very specific task that was ministry-related. Verse 4, But we, the apostles and leadership, will devote ourselves, notice the priorities of being a pastor, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's what, a, what is a pastor supposed to be doing first and foremost? Praying and the ministry of the Word. And the ministry of the Word entails studying the Word of God. Verse 5, And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. Everybody was pleased with the solution. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, And then these other guys who have weird names. And Nicholas. Verse 6. 
And these, they brought before the apostles. They said, okay, we took a vote. We, we found these men. God raised these men up. We have respect for these men. We know these men. They are the man. We're presenting them to you as the leadership of the church. And they brought them to the apostles. And after praying, then the apostles laid their hands on these men and commissioned them as deacons to serve in the church in a very specific ministry. And notice the result. Verse 7, God was pleased, and the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Notice, the church continued to grow. This is very much in keeping with Ephesians 4.12 in terms of the priorities of ministry. What the apostles, what the pastors are supposed to be doing, what the deacons are supposed to be doing, and what all the other saints are supposed to be doing. And when you do that obediently according to Scripture, God blesses and the result is growth. That's awesome. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. So God gave gifted men as a resource to the church. Every church should have qualified, called, godly, knowledgeable pastors who model a godly life for the saints. That's first in their resource. And then the other resource is that it's the Scripture. And it's not just, Scripture is not just a resource for the pastor. Scripture is a resource for every Christian, isn't it? Every Christian needs to go to the Word of God. That's their resource. That's their food. That's their uh, job description. Ephesians 4.12 is not just a job description for the pastor. It's also a job description for every Christian. Every layperson, what you're supposed to be doing and with what you're supposed to be doing. And that is Scripture. Let's go ahead and look at Scripture. Turn to um, 2 Timothy 3.16. And I want to look at that verse in detail and in context. I wrote it out there, just a couple of words, what they mean in that passage. 2 Timothy 3.16. By the way, the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to a pastor named Timothy. Timothy was probably maybe in his early 30s. He had been trained... For and discipled by Paul for up to 15 years as a young pastor. And Paul is writing Timothy to remind him of what the priorities are in a ministry as a man of God and as a pastor. And he's telling, and all throughout this book, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he keeps telling uh, Tim, Pastor Timothy what his priorities are. You're a pastor, you need to be praying, and you need to be teaching the Word of God. Teaching the Bible, counseling with the Bible, exhorting with the Bible, explaining the Bible, living the Bible, modeling the Bible, applying the Bible. Over and over and over again is his theme. And he says the reason you can do that, Timothy, is because the Bible is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. Did you know that every problem we have in this church, the Bible has an answer for the solution? I believe that. As a matter of fact, every problem I have in life, the Bible has an answer. Everything I need about my marriage, the Bible has an answer. Everything I need to know about parenting, the Bible has an answer. The Bible is sufficient because that's God's intent. That's what Paul's trying to... uh, Remind Timothy of in 2 Timothy 3.16. Timothy, you have everything you need as a pastor. You are totally equipped because you have the very word of God in Scripture. So uh, that's the context. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 14. He's reminding Timothy and he says this. You, however, Timothy, Pastor Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned all along. What has he been learning? Well, it's the Bible. Continue the things that you have learned to become convinced of. In other words, don't get distracted knowing from whom you have learned them. He's talking about the Word of God, verse 15, and that from childhood, from your infancy, literally, when you were a young boy, you have known the sacred writings. We're talking about the Bible. We're talking about the Scripture here, sacred writings, literally. The Old Testament Scriptures. You were taught the Old Testament Scriptures from the time you could crawl, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And by the way, it was his mother and his grandmother who began to teach him the scriptures when he was very young and it stuck. And then Paul took over when he got older. Verse 16. And then he says this is about the sacred writings. All scripture, that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. All scripture is inspired by God, or literally God breathed. What is written down in scripture came from God's mouth. He is the author of scripture. 
That's what he's saying. All Scripture is inspired by God. What Scripture says, God says. And it is profitable. It is useful. For what? For teaching. That's what I'm supposed to be doing with the Scripture. Not talking about it, not talking around it. Teaching it. Teaching the Bible. Profitable for teaching. For, that's positive. That's filling you with knowledge in a positive way. For reproof and correction. That's kind of negative, right? When we are reproved or corrected, that straightens out our wrong thinking because as sinful, finite human beings, we think the wrong way. I know I do. I need to be corrected and rebuked by Scripture all the time because my thinking is wrong. It gets us back on course. That's what we use the Bible for. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible shows us how to live a holy life. That's what it's talking about. In order that the man or the woman of God or the child of God or the teenager of God, because we have some in here, may be adequate, equipped for every good work or that the, the Christian may be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished. And in other words, the Scripture has everything we need. It is totally sufficient. That's why we call it the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible has all the answers. It has everything we need for life and godliness, says Peter. It is in there. We don't need anything more in a church as far as our playbook and master plan. It is the Scripture. It is the Bible that dictates ministry and daily living in the personal life. That's what Paul's saying. So we can't deviate from Scripture. That is our resource. And if we're faithful to living it, communicating it, God's going to bless, and you're going to see your church grow. And then at the end of that phrase, back in Ephesians 4, go ahead and go back to Ephesians 4.12. So if we got the right people in place, doing the right thing uh, in terms of teaching and modeling Scripture, then you are poised for growth as a church and as an individual Christian. And by the way, he says in that number one, God gave sufficient resources for true ministry, that is biblical truth, for the equipping of the saints. The saints, very important. The saints just refers to every Christian. If you're a Christian, you are a saint, believe it or not. I don't care what your spouse says about you or one of your children or one of your co-workers. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. Saint simply means a holy one. In other words, you got saved by Jesus Christ. You don't need to wait till you die and get canonized. You're a holy one right now. And the point is, every Christian, every saint, every believer needs to be equipped and trained by their local church. Everyone without exception. So if you're a Christian this morning, you should have the expectation from your local church that they need to train you and equip you and resource you and give you opportunities to minister and even model it for you and hold you accountable and encourage you in the process. That's what we're supposed to do. Every saint, perfecting the saints, equipping the saints. That's what that means, to equip. So every Christian literally has, uh, what's those things that you carry arrows around in? Um, yeah, thank you. Every Christian is born again with a quiver. And it is the responsibility, well, the Holy Spirit puts a whole bunch of arrows in your quiver, by the way. And it is the responsibility of the local church and the leadership to show you how to use the bow and how to pull it back and not hurt yourself and how to direct it properly and be successful at doing that. We are to equip you, to train you and provide opportunities for you to shoot and to shoot the right thing and to go get your kill when you're done. That's what we're supposed to do. Every saint perfected, matured, equipped for what? That's point number two. Go ahead and look at that. Number two, God gave specific requirements for true ministry for every Christian and that is spiritual service. So God gave leaders in the church to teach the Word of God, to train and prepare the saints so that they will do spiritual service. What Paul calls here in Ephesians 4.12, for the work of the ministry. Or the New King James says, for the work of service. And this word here, ministry, service, is from the word where we get diakonos, which means deacon. What is a deacon? A deacon is first and foremost a servant in the church. That's where that word comes from. And that's what this word is here, diakonos. 
or a form of that word. So every Christian is to be trained and equipped so that they can serve, so that they can do ministry in the local church. That is God's expectation. That is God's requirement. That is the responsibility of every church leader to make sure every saint in your local church is serving somewhere. Uh, Two things I want to highlight regarding this phrase for the work of ministry or for the work of service is, first of all, that word there, the Greek word for work, is ergon. Does that sound familiar? Ergon. Ergonomics. Maybe you use that in your business place. It has to do with how you conduct yourself at work and your posture and those kind of things. Ergonomics. Uh, The Greek word is ergon. It just means, means work. It means, by the way, active labor. It means hands on active labor. It means being involved. That's what it means. It's a proactive term. It's not passive. Energy. Filled with energy and exhibiting energy. So that's what it's saying. Every saint is supposed to be involved in the work of service, the work of ministry. In other words, every Christian is supposed to be productive because that's what the word ergon means. It means productive, producing. You have output that can be gauged, literally. This is the total antithesis of someone who is simply a passive listener. And unfortunately, you know, based on that quote that I read at the very beginning, it didn't take long, a couple centuries into the, the church, where the church became so institutionalized, they didn't meet in homes anymore, and they would come to a central location like this, and they built these huge mammoth buildings, and then you uh, deified the clergy, who was way up there on the altar, and you could hardly even see him, and he has all spiritual truth, and he's the only guy that does anything, and everybody else that comes to church, they are simply a spectator, and they sit there for an hour and a half and simply listen and do nothing. That's not biblical ministry. That is not what God had in mind for church. It is nowhere found in the New Testament. God's model for churches is that the saints are being equipped for ministry so that they will ergon, they will do, they will work, they will give output, they will produce, they will be productive, they will be laboring. That's also what the word means. Labor, blood, sweat, and tears. That's God's design. So again, not spectators, not passive listeners, but doing something. That's God's intent for every Christian. Remember James, what he said, James chapter 1, verse 22? He told Christians, do not be listeners only of the word, but doers of the word. No, he said it this way. Be doers of the word and not listeners only who what? Delude themselves. Ooh, that's, that's a strong rebuke. Who delude themselves. Who are deceived and blinded. These are people who think they are pleasing God by virtue of the fact of simply being religious by listening to religious or... Bible teaching all the time and never do anything. That is self-deception. That is delusion. That's what James says. Don't just be a listener of the word. Be a doer of the word. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Aragon, doing the work of the ministry. And ministry is work. Ministry is hard. Ministry isn't always fun. Ministry is blood, sweat, and tears many times. As a matter of fact, one pastor recently said, when he first became a pastor, it was a honeymoon. Yippee! And then over time, it became kind of a, a labor. Uh, and then it actually became a, a fight over time. And then he says, you know what? I see ministry now. It is all-out war. That's what he calls it. And that's the way he lives as a pastor. And he's talking about war on the human level, but also at the spiritual level. So it is work. Um, Ephesians 2.10, we read that already, that God has given every Christian, before the foundation of the world, he determined that he was going to give you spiritual gifts so that you could do works that were prepared for you in eternity past, so you could do them in this lifetime, so you could help grow the church. And these works that you are called to do by God, we're going to be held accountable to in the next lifetime, aren't we? Through rewards or lack of rewards. So we are to be stewards of the ministry that God has given us. If you're a Christian this morning, there's a ministry for you. 
Some of you have a ministry, it's ongoing, it's regular, you're working hard, and God is blessing you as a result. Some of you don't have a ministry, that's okay. We need to work towards that goal. Uh, The second word I want to highlight there is service. What does that mean? Well, I already talked about it. It's the word diakonos, which means servant. or It's a biblical word, and it's a very specific word. The emphasis is on not just human service, but service on a supernatural level. Service that is empowered by the Holy Spirit living inside of you because you're a Christian. It is spiritual service for God. Religious service for God first and foremost. Secondly, it is service that is other-oriented. It's serving other people, not yourself. And Jesus is the master of ministry or biblical service, diakonos. And he gave that to us in John 13 when he got down on his knees and washed the dirty, stinky feet of the apostles. And he said, I have given you an example of how you are to serve one another. So that's the example of true biblical ministry. Other-oriented. By the way, true biblical ministry is not selective either. Yeah, I'll serve in the church, but uh, here's my very limited list of the things that I would like to do. Biblical ministry, according to the New Testament, diakonos, is, is really a, it's just a willing heart. I will do anything you want me to do. I will do anything God calls me to do. I will do anything that needs to be done in the local church. That's the right attitude for biblical ministry. And if you were to ask me right now, five months, five months into our church plant, do we have areas of need where we need people to work, work hard and serve? I'd say absolutely. Here's a list of 17 things that need to be done. Which one would you like to consider prayerfully? Using your gift as God has called you to do. By the way, uh, we wrote a philosophy of ministry here at Grace Bible Fellowship. It's on our webpage and we use it and we share it with those that want to join our church and become a member. Philosophy of ministry. Several points. Uh, and much of that philosophy of ministry has to do with our attitude regarding what is ministry. Here's, I just want to read this. Here's, we have 15 points regarding our philosophy of ministry. Here's two points. Grace Bible Fellowship. Number 11, every Christian is called to ministry. Every Christian is called to ministry in their local church on a regular, ongoing basis. Very important because not a lot of churches, either, they either don't believe that or they don't teach it or they don't hold their people accountable to do it. Every Christian is called to ministry. Every believer is expected to serve God, Christ, and the church in formal ministry. God prepared works of ministry for every believer before the foundation of the world to complete in this life. We will all be held accountable for our works of ministry or our negligence in ministry, and every Christian is enabled or empowered to bear fruit in ministry through the spiritual gifts. And then I gave a whole bunch of verse references that go along with it. So very important. Every saint serving. An awesome and great truth. And the more and higher percentage we have of saints in our church serving in ministry, the more God is going to bless our church and more growth we are going to see, which leads us to point number three. God gave a promise. If you're an obedient Christian in an obedient church and you've got obedient saints that make up your church, God's going to bless your ministry. He's going to bless your church in a healthy and good way. Uh, That's number three. God gave a promised result for true ministry. He did. God promises results. Did you know that? That's good to know. God always keeps his promises. I like to see results in my work, don't you? That was the one frustrating thing about being a teacher of young children. Many times you didn't, because I was a teacher and educator in the schools for a few years, and it was kind of frustrating because many times, because uh, you're dealing with dynamic human lives, you don't necessarily see immediate results in young people, young children, teenagers. But it was always refreshing 10 years later to get a letter from one of these students, Mr. McManus, thank you for doing, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, I thought that kid hated me. This is cool. They're growing up. They appreciate it. That's awesome. So you don't see those immediate results. But my dad was a painter. He actually still is a painter. And I grew up painting with my dad. That's why I actually like painting and scraping the paint off. and Because you see immediate results. It's satisfying. It is gratifying. You see what you're accomplishing. Uh, But God promised you can see results in time. It's always in his time, not always in our time. 
But God promised to give results. What are the results? Healthy growth is the promised result. Healthy growth. Not just growth, but it's healthy growth. Because did you know that you can have growth that is not healthy? You can actually have growth that is debilitating and unhealthy and destructive. I know that when I broke my pinky sledding down a mountain about five years ago. Going down the mountain and I was using my right hand and my left hand for brakes and also to keep me on balance. And we're going about 90 miles an hour down the hill and going down the snow with my hands on top of the snow and I ran into a rock with my right hand, smack, and just shattered my pinky. And it hurt. Um, And I neglected to go to the doctor for about three weeks because I thought I was tough. And finally it wasn't getting better, it was getting worse and I knew something was wrong. So I went to see the doctor, they did an x-ray and the doctor wanted to slap me upside the head and said, why didn't you come in? Three weeks ago, your pinky is shattered in about nine pieces, the bone. And they've all stuck together, and they've started growing together the wrong way. So so if you ever want to use your pinky again, we've got to do surgery. We've got to tear apart all the bones that are growing together and put them back together again the right way, Humpty Dumpty. I said, okay. And they stuck a pin in there, and anyway. But that was just a good reminder. You know what? Not all growth, because it was growing, but it was growing the wrong way. Not all growth is healthy growth. There's things called dysfunctional growth. But that's the promise of God. Ephesians 4.12, he says, if you do this, you've got your right men in place. They're doing the right job using the right resources. They're equipping and edifying the saints and preparing them for ministry. And the saints get involved in actually hands-on work of doing the ministry in the local church. Then the promise of God is, or at least the goal is, to the building up of the body of Christ, to build the church. That's what's going to happen. You're going to build the church. And growth in the local church happens on two levels. On the individual growth, one individual at a time, and then you've got corporate growth. And it is the exact the reason Paul calls it a body is because there's so many parallels and illustrations we can learn from the human body about the church and how the church grows. How does a human body grow? It's composed of cells. And a lot of the corporate growth and health of a physical body is dependent upon the health of every individual cell in that body. And so if you have healthy cells in your human body, that's going to facilitate healthy corporate growth of your body. The same thing in the church. If we want a healthy church at large, then we've got to start by focusing in on healthy individuals that compose and make up our church. And you know what? That's where my focus is. As a matter of fact, I have not for five months or six months now, I have not even focused, thought about, considered the growth of our church corporately. Either how big we're going to get how influential we're going to be, how big we're going to be in three years, and and like these are my desires, aspirations, because they're not. I've been giving all of my focus, as has our entire elder board or advisory council, on individual growth, because that's where it starts. Healthy individual Christians will produce a healthy corporate church. So that's where it starts. So if you want a big, not even a big, but if you just want a healthy Church, that's the byproduct of healthy individuals who compose your church. There are a lot of dysfunctional churches out there, but they are made up of dysfunctional people on an individual basis, or at least a dysfunctional philosophy about ministry. So we zero in on the individuals. That was the nature of Paul's ministry, too. It's one person at a time that we're concerned about. Every soul, which is also a part of the Grace Bible Fellowship philosophy of ministry, or actually one of our distinctives. Every soul matters, every person counts. Whether it's a five-year-old that walked in today, a visitor who is with us, a teenager, a single person, or you're older. Every soul is important. It needs to be. 
one verse I want to read. Look at Colossians, if you've got your Bible. Look at Colossians 1.28, because this, this is just kind of the apex, the culmination of Paul's focus in ministry, where he concentrated on individuals first, in a very specific way. Paul didn't want any one person to fall through the cracks or the net in the big group of people. Nobody should be getting lost in the bustle. So Colossians 1.28, he says, and we, and he's talking as an apostle, as a pastor, as a teacher, and we, and this is what he did, this was his priority, and we proclaim Christ, admonishing every single man, literally every single person, so it's an individual focus, teaching every man, he keeps repeating that phrase, every man, every person, every Christian, individual focus with all wisdom, in order that we may present notice, every man complete in Christ. Every Christian in Christ. That was Paul's desire. Every Christian, regardless of their age, he wanted them to be complete, mature in Jesus Christ. So the focus is on an individual basis. That's why Jesus, when he gave that parable, he said, a good shepherd, he knows the name of all 100 of his sheep. And when one of the 100 is missing, the good shepherd knows one of them is missing, and he knows which one, and he knows its name. So that's what a biblical shepherd in the local church needs to be. They need to know their sheep. They need to know them by name. They need to know them on an individual basis, and they need to have the goal of helping them grow in Christ to become complete in Christ, everyone. And that's what we try to do here at Grace Bible Fellowship. I know we're small, which makes it easier, so we've been concentrating about on every person who has ever walked through our door. We just feel a sense of responsibility to find out who they are. Why are they here? Where are they going? Where, where are they at with Jesus Christ? Praying for them. And then if they keep coming back, all the more sense of responsibility and onus we have to shepherd these people so that we might present them complete in Christ. And you know what? It's a joy to do so. You have to like people. You have to love people in order to be able to do that consistently. And I think we've, God has given us, blessed us with people in this church who, who love people. So that's awesome. So we are concentrating on individual growth. And then just on corporate growth, corporate growth is just simply the byproduct of healthy individual growth. Because this is just filling the great, fulfilling the great uh, commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Remember? What is the Great Commission? Well, the emphasis is to make disciples, right? That's the goal of the Great Commission. It's not to evangelize. It is to make disciples. Evangelizing is only one step in fulfilling the Great Commission, to make disciples. So the Great Commission is to make disciples. You do it by going. That's evangelism. By baptizing. That's after they get saved. You assimilate them into your local church. And by teaching them all things that I have said. That's what Jesus said. That is discipleship. Where you spend the rest of your life and their life teaching them everything God wants them to know in the Bible. That's a lifelong pursuit. And the goal is to bring every individual to maturity in Jesus Christ. And you know what the definition or the example or the poster child of a mature Christian is? A mature disciple in the... Great Commission, a mature, complete disciple isn't somebody who has been evangelized. It is somebody who you have discipled to become an evangelizer, and they are disciple makers. So that's what we're trying to make. We are trying, not just trying to make disciples. We are trying to make disciple makers who reproduce themselves after Christ's likeness. That's how you have corporate exponential growth. So you concentrate individual growth, and then if you're healthy, successful there, it expands into corporate numerical growth. And he told two people, and she told two people. That's the Avon uh, shampoo commercial or whatever. Reproduction. That's what we're going for. But it starts at the individual level. And God promises that he's going to do that. Uh, well, anyway, that's, I know that's a mouthful, and that's exciting. But I did want to conclude uh, for self-evaluation or just prayerful consideration every single one of us before God in light of this truth, 
that is for us. Ephesians 4.12, if you are a Christian and you know Jesus Christ personally, then we all have a responsibility before him. And I, and I say this all the time. Every Christian should be able to answer some real basic questions. Question number one, what is your ministry? Can you identify with the ministry? Uh, for some here, uh, a youth worker we have, part of his ministry is he's the sign-putter-upper every Sunday. That is a, a real ministry service that contributes to the growth of our church. We've had a handful of people who have actually come attend our church and affiliate with us as a result of just the sign. Thank God for a willing teenager who's willing to go out early and put that up, pick it up and put it away. That is labor. It's a heavy sign. That's just one example of service. So we've got several examples of people like that serving in many different ways. This is not Cliff's church. I, I actually do very little. What I do is very focused. But there's a lot that happens around that is absolutely necessary and exciting. God is using it to grow the church, and it is the result of faithful saints in this body who are serving in a very specific ministry. So if you're a Christian, what is your ministry? You need to answer that question. If you don't have a ministry, you need to be, start praying for God. God, use me in the local church. Where can I serve? Where can I be ergon, active, productive, giving output so that the church can grow? And you know what? God will answer that prayer. Maybe you need to go to the leadership of your church, too, and ask them, where can I serve? Because, like I said, we, we can come up with a list of maybe 52 things. Hey, here's a whole bunch of things. Prayerfully consider these. And we will help the Holy Spirit identify you with a ministry. You don't even have to necessarily be gifted in that area of ministry. We need chairs to be picked up. We need a floor to be mopped. We need, And on and on it goes. So my prayer is that our church will be typified by Christians who have a, an understanding that second nature to them is they have a very specific ministry that they are committed to, working hard so that they can see their local church grow and be blessed by God. So let's just entrust future growth to him. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer as we close. Father, thank you for uh, the Lord's Day, another opportunity to worship you, to celebrate the resurrection and the life and the ongoing lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you for meeting us here today in worship in a real way through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for speaking through your word, the Bible. As it teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, and trains us in righteousness. And God, I just pray that you would, your hand of blessing would be upon Grace Bible Fellowship, that we'd never lose our focus. But with respect to ministry, we need to be committed to using the Bible as a resource to equip the saints so they can do the work of the ministry so that you can grow your church. So we just commit that to you. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.